If you have found Genesis 7, uh, we're going to start here in just a moment in uh, verse 6. We finished with verse 5 of Genesis 7 last week. Um, But in in thinking of this text, I I was reminded, as I often am in reading the Old Testament, and really as we've gone through this whole book of Genesis thus far, I was reminded of this, and I think you'll agree with this, that good authors or good storytellers uh, will often leave crumb, literary crumb trails early on in their stories uh, that they're telling, uh, like crumb trails that you may or may not notice as you're reading them, as you're thinking about them, but they are inevitably, whether you know it or not, leading you toward a big event or a big person or thing that's going to happen later in the story and the author maybe puts a little detail here or a phrase on the lips of a person there or a a location, an event, a a phrase that's hidden with meaning, a prop or something like that but that later is going to kind of burst with significance and you don't often recognize it the first time you read it. You may think, that's a crumb. I don't care. Uh, But often once you've read the full story, then you go back and read it again. Now you're like, Oh, crumb there, big crumb there. Like I see uh, what the author is doing. That, uh, what, and what you see when you see those things is that the author did not just stumble upon a good ending, right? Like they knew from the beginning what they were going to do, uh, how the story was going to shape, what was going to take place, and they wanted to move you along toward it. They didn't just randomly come up with a, a, a good ending. They brought you along in it. And the divine author is no exception. He's the exemplar of this. Uh, that, that he left early on in the records of scripture and early on in human history a divine crumb trail. These events, these people uh, that we may know of but we not, might not give a lot of significance to but that are to prep us for the, the grand entrance, the grand events of Christ and of his salvation that he gives to us. God gave promises He gave a promise right in the Garden of Eden as he was getting ready to send Adam and Eve out. But on the heels of that promise, God started to also give pictures, give give some glimpses into what he was going to do through the sending of Jesus. If you're familiar with the Bible, you probably know some of these. Uh, Just rapid fire real quick. Uh, God in the first Adam gave us a picture of what the second Adam would be like, right? This uh, human who's the head of the race living in paradise at the beginning, and then the second head of humanity, Jesus, who restores us and brings us to a greater paradise. Later in Genesis, you get God, he calls Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, right? And then provides a substitute ram in the thicket. It's like a gut wrench. It's like a crumb that's a gut wrenching one. That's a picture for us of what God the Father would do at Calvary, where he slayed his own son, where he sacrificed his son. Or you think of at the end of Genesis, there's the story of Joseph that you're probably familiar with. See if this sounds familiar, that there's this mistreated brother, this rejected brother who's left for dead and goes through immense suffering, Right? but then who is, ascends to glory, ascends to prominence and power and uses that power to bless the very people who left him for dead. Does that sound familiar? Like that sounds like Christ, right? Uh, I mean, there's Passover lambs. There's the parting of the sea, the Red Sea. There's the temple. There's uh, the slaying of Goliath. There's a host of crumbs in the Old Testament that lead us to Calvary. Uh, And this story that we're reading last week, this week, and next week, and even maybe a week even beyond that, the story of Noah's 
ark, as we often refer to it, uh, is one of those divine crumbs in the crumb trail uh, that is interesting in its own right, and I want to read it in its own right, but it's pointing us ahead to a greater Noah, to a greater ark uh, in the person of Jesus. And so I want to read this text for us this morning. It's kind of a longer text. It's a good chunk of this chapter, uh, chapter 7. But my, my hope in prepping this, reading it, sharing this this morning, is that in reading it, not just that you would know more about Noah or be more impressed with the ark that he built, um, but that you would know and understand, appreciate more about Christ. I think that's how the Lord uh, would want to use this text in your life. But I don't want to bypass the story. We always want to try to make a beeline to the cross in our sermons, but not in a way where we do a roundabout, like a bypass uh, around the story itself. We want to read the story itself, see what it shows us in its own right, but then see how it leads us to Jesus. So this story, Noah's Ark, as we often refer to it, is several chapters here in Genesis. Uh, it serves kind of like a halfway point between Adam and Abraham. Uh, and a lot of the characters in this story that spans hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, a lot of characters get very little airtime. Their names maybe are mentioned, uh, but the story of Noah gets a ton, relatively speaking, here in Genesis. Several chapters of it, so it's very important in the mind of the author Moses that we would see it, that we would understand it well. So last week we were leading up to the flood. Uh, we saw the preparation for it, God saying what he was going to do and flooding the earth, why he was going to do it, and what Noah needed to do to prepare for it, right? Now we're going to read about, if you want to call it like the flood proper, the actual flooding of the earth. And so I'm going to read this account for us. I'm going to start at Genesis 7, verse 6. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. We've started a practice recently of after uh, I read the text, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, because it is. And if you agree and believe that, I'd ask that you respond by saying, thanks be to God. Okay, so I'm going to read this. I would encourage you to follow along. Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, continues the story this way. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. 
The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all of mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. I want to try to uh, unpack this story and it's on its own terms, uh, explain what was happening here, um, and then talk about how it points us ahead to Jesus. And so I want, I want to walk back through this passage. It's probably a story that's largely familiar with you, uh, but you may know it from uh, wall, mural walls of a room as opposed to actually reading the text itself. And so I want to make sure that we understand this text on its own terms. And, but then we'll follow the trail of crumbs uh, to Calvary. So let's soak in this story first, uh, what actually is happening. First, I want to remind you or inform you uh, that this was a real event. Like this really happened. Uh, there, and if you disagree with me, I would just say you're disagreeing with Moses, the author, and you're disagreeing with the interpretation that Jesus had of this text. Even just looking at this text itself, notice how many timestamps there are on it. Those don't come up in mythical stories. Uh, these, these very specific timestamps, they're not necessary in mythical stories. Uh, you only include these if you think these are real people, things that really happen. It's situated, the story is situated in a specific year right? The 600th year of Noah's life. It's not just some random mythical time. It, was, it started on a specific day, right? Second month, the 17th day, verse 11 says, it rained a particular amount of days, 40 days and 40 nights. And then it says that the waters prevailed, if I'm interpreting it right, another 110 days. So there's 150 total. There's an actual quantity of days because this really happened. Like, myths don't need details like that. And you may think this is a myth. Moses did not. Uh, Jesus did not. This actually took place. And so what happened here? What's recorded for us here in the story of the flood proper? First, uh, you see that Noah and his family and all this host of animals, land animals and uh, birds of the air, they all enter into the ark. Right? That's step one of the story. They enter into this ark that has been constructed. Uh, this is described twice. Uh, I don't, it's in verses 7 to 9, and then it's again in verses 13 to 16. I don't think they like, did a test run entering it and then like, evacuated and then went back in. It's just uh, like how we narrate stories sometimes. Sometimes we just say things multiple times and, and kind of have different edge to it. But uh, we're told that they enter into the ark 
And we're given kind of like a divine manifest here, like a list of passengers who are on this ship. Uh, we're told the human passengers that there's eight people who uh, embark upon the ark. There's Noah, his wife, their three sons, and then those, uh, the, the wives of those three sons. So eight human beings in total. Presumably Noah did not have grandchildren as of yet. So there's eight human passengers and then a host of animal passengers. Uh, that, that are not give, we're not given the specificity that I think we would like to have. Like we go to zoos now and we have like taxonomies of animals and uh, we can spell out all these things. We are told that there's a variety of animals, that there's various kinds. Uh, it's hearkening back here in the text to Genesis 1 and the according to their kinds language and creation. Uh, that it, and what it's intending at minimum to communicate to us is that this is comprehensive in nature. We're not told the details of it, but that all uh, samples of all of these land creatures and birds are brought to this ark. Notice in verses 14 and 15, the language of all the livestock, every creeping thing, uh, every winged creature. It's this comprehensive language. It's not just like a sampling of these creatures. It is all of them. And what you see, it's fascinating even in the, the arrival of these animals to coming uh, to uh, to Noah is that Noah is kind of pictured like a new Adam figure, isn't he? Like when we were back in Genesis chapter 2, I don't know if you were with us, but you may remember this story that uh, the Lord brought all the animals almost like in a parade before Adam to name them, right? And now here he brings these animals again back to this like new Adam of sorts, but he's not naming them, he's rescuing them, he's providing shelter for them, right? So they enter into the ark. That's step one. Then what you see in verse 16, the end of verse 16, after everybody is on board, uh, you see that the Lord shuts them in. The Lord shuts the door of the ark. This, uh, in verse 16, it's the same word, the same image that was used back in the Garden of Eden when God made Eve, if you remember this, from the side of Adam. And then it says that he closed back up Adam's side. It's the same image, same idea here. There's this door he told them to construct on the side of the ark. And I don't know exactly what this has looked like. I don't know uh, if, if this is saying metaphorically that the Lord shut them in uh, or if there was some mechanism Noah had built, but, but then it's like, I, I don't know. It just says that the Lord shut them into the ark. And I have tried to contemplate this. Like why, it's a thought experiment. Why did God make them build a boat with a door on the side of it? Have you thought about that before? I don't think that's how people normally built boats back then. Like they would have got entered at the top like everybody else does uh, of the boat. But God purposely has Noah build this with a door presumably big enough to have elephant walk in or whatever. Uh, like this massive door on the side of it. And then this records for us that the Lord shuts them in. The Lord is the one who shuts that door, whether it's figuratively or metaphorically. It's at minimum figuratively uh, that the Lord is shutting them. Because could you imagine in the ancient world trying to create a door that is watertight, like with seals, <laughs> this massive door? It would have been one thing to put pitch on the inside and out of the stuff you constructed in advance. Um, but to have this door, this gaping hole on the side that now these animals are in and you're, this thing is closing, for that to be watertight, I think, would have had to take a work of God. 
that, that, that even the very construction of this and God shutting them in was to show uh, that if they were going to emerge from the ark, it was going to be God that protected them, not Noah's engineering or cleverness, right? There's a commentator, Victor Hamilton, who said that if Noah is to emerge alive from the ark, it will be because of the grace and protecting presence of Yahweh. Divine mercy rather than human skill will be the determining factor. The Lord shut him in. Noah didn't shut his family in. The Lord shut them in. So there's a fascinating statement there that the Lord shut them in. But third, what happens next, and this is the, the most horrific part of the text, and it's hard even to read aloud when you really believe this is real and true, is that God floods the entirety of the earth as judgment for human rebellion. I think this text shows us the very flooding of the earth here that God never makes empty threats. Like God doesn't break promises. He had said that he was going to flood the earth and he did. He keeps his word. He did what he told Noah he would do. And what we see how it's described for us is that water comes from above and water comes from below. And I wish we knew more about it. In our scientific age, we want to know how does, this, uh, how does this have to do with like seismic plates and the plate tectonics and volcanoes and were there mountains that were really high at that point or did this create them? I don't know all that. All that this describes in verse 11 is that the fountains of the great deep burst forth. We're not given a description of what that means. But there's something from below burst forth, and then it says in verse 11 also that the windows of the heavens were opened. So it's like this deluge from below and above. It's hearkening back to Genesis 1, if you remember where God separated the waters above and the waters below. It's picking up on that imagery that from all sides, water is coming to flood the earth. And then in verse 12 and 17, we're, we're told that it rains for 40 days and 40 nights. This first instance of the number 40, that's uh, significant in the scriptures. Rain falls 40 days and 40 nights. And horribly, hauntingly, the water, it says, it just rises and rises and rises till it's even uh, above the tops of the mountains, Right? And the, the ark rises and rises with it. But as those waters rise, what that means is that more and more human beings and animals and birds are dying. They have no place to run. Maybe we can speculate. We're not told us, but maybe they tried to get to higher ground. Or maybe uh, we, we don't know uh, how long they may have survived in the short term. But by the end of it, you have waters covering the entirety of the earth Everything below it other than sea creatures, dead. This is haunting, right? That all these creatures are dead. But this text makes it clear, God is the one who's bringing it about, right? It says that, verse 23, he blotted out every living thing. Right? This is not just some like natural catastrophe that God just knew was going to happen and capitalize on. God brings it. He's the one who brings this judgment upon the earth. And there are some who will try to argue that this was a regional flood. They would say, well, Moses, the author, he didn't know of the spherical nature of the earth. He wouldn't have known anything beyond his little sphere of like Egypt and this area that he would have lived and known of. 
Um, and they'll, they'll point out that when Moses would use words like earth, like he would be thinking of land, which is true. Like he would not have been thinking of the sphere of the earth. But I would just challenge you, if you think that this was a regional flood, is to just read the feel of the text, right? The, the, the text, there's, there's explicit things and then there's feel of text. Like this text, is the whole feel of it is that judgment is coming upon everyone and everything on the planet that's in existence besides the people and the animals that are on this ark, right? If it was a regional flood, this is speculative, it's not authoritative, but if it was a regional flood, even a vast regional flood, why would God not have just had them evacuate? Right? Or, or the birds just fly, migrate somewhere else while there's floods and then they could come back. The, the thing that makes most sense is that God is giving no place of respite, not over the mountain, not across the river, somewhere else, but that the entirety, anywhere that they would go, there's no escape. That is the feel of this text. And just note, we're not even told how many, or how many uh, die, we're told how many live. Right? If that, that shows you the magnitude of this. So this isn't just part of humanity. This is all of humanity, save a people. So the waters rise and rise and everything dies below it. It's haunting to even contemplate. But this story also, there's this glimpse of hope that there's on top of the waters, there's this floating ark with uh, uh, passengers inside, animals and human like and according to promise those survivors are carried along they're lifted up they're brought up on the water safe under God's care this is a story of epic proportion it involves the whole world it involves all humanity it's cataclysmic and it's hard to imagine a story uh, that could be bigger a story that could be grander, a story that could have more at stake in it, but there is a story that is bigger and grander and more important even than this one. Uh, this story of, of Noah and the ark is, it is a resounding testimony to realities of God's justice, God's holiness, God's power, God's hatred of sin, but also to God's grace mercy like his power to save it, it testifies to all of those things but in the whole scheme of things this story as epic as it is is a little crumb on the trail to calvary but it was placed there in early in human history and in the scriptures for us to see some things about that grander event that was going to take place in the death burial resurrection Christ. And so I want to take the time that remains this morning, and I, I want to talk under two headings from this text and, and ways it points us ahead to Jesus. And I'm just going to use the two words we usually use to describe this story, Noah and the ark, Noah's ark, uh, and show us how uh, Noah and the ark itself both give us pictures of what Jesus was going to be and what he was going to do, both in the person of Noah and in the physical object of the ark. And my main heading this morning, the summary of it would just be this, is that we all, every person in this room, we need Christ both as our head and as our haven. That we need him as our head to represent us, that we need him as our haven to protect us. I'm going to show you uh, from this text what I mean. And how I think this text was 
articulated as it was uh, to point us ahead to Jesus. So what do I mean that we need Christ as our head? Where do we see headship in this text? Uh, as I read through this, I don't know, uh, I tried to emphasize it a couple of times in how I read, but I kind of have a flat voice, so sometimes it's not always easiest for me to do. But I want to go back and point out uh, a few times, several times actually in this text, where the text purposefully zeroes in on the singular person of Noah. Like not even just the eight people, but the one man, the one person. Noah. It's numerous times in this text, and once you see it, you can't unsee it. Okay, a couple of things, just general big picture. First, this whole story is framed according to Noah's age, right? Like his 600th year of his life. So you know, boom, he's important in this story. He's the main figure. But then look at some of these things observationally. Look at verse 7, uh, what it says there. It says, Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. So he doesn't just say, hey, they all went into the ark. He says, those seven people went in with Noah into the ark, right? Look at verse 9 as he's uh, summed up this description of the animals that would go into the ark. He ends that verse saying that, uh, well, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. So these animals go into the ark with Noah. Noah is important that they are with him, right? If you go down to verse 15, this is stated again, uh, talking about all the people and animals. It says, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. So again, they go into the ark with Noah, right? And then this is the most intriguing of all. Look at verse 16, and I kind of stated it wrong, I guess, earlier. The end of verse 16, the closing of the ark, it says, the Lord shut him in. Singular, right? There's other people in the ark, but it says that the Lord shut Noah in to the ark, right? And then the last one, if you go down to the end of the story, verse 23, uh, it talks about how God has blotted out every living thing on the face of the earth. They're blotted out from the earth, then it says, only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. So again and again, numerous times in this text, you see not just them referred to as a collective group of people or a collective group of passengers aboard the ark, but everybody else that's on the ark is there with Noah. Like he is the pivotal figure. He is the central figure. And I think that repetition is supposed to show that to us, that there is one person, even earlier in the story, we looked at this uh, a little while back, uh, there's one person in the story who is said to be righteous in God's sight, not eight. There's one who is said to be viewed as righteous, and it is Noah. He's the one who we saw earlier, that he is the one who is said to have the favor of God. Not Noah and uh, his family, but Noah finds favor with God, this singular man. And if all those other passengers, human and animal alike, are to have the favor of God upon them, it's in a derivative way. It's because Noah has the favor of God and they are with him, right? That, that Noah is the singular one person, one man who has God's favor upon him. And this is how God has always arranged things in human history, in human existence, is this idea of headship 
uh, that there is a singular person who stands in for the whole. Uh, there, Adam was intended to be that way. He was that way. That he, as the first man, as the head of his family, and by extension, the human race, he was the one who stood in our place, on our behalf as a human race. And we cringe at this as Americans. Like, we hate, 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 hate the idea of someone else standing in for me and their record getting counted to me. We hate it. Like we say, I want to be known on my own credentials. Like I want to be able to earn my way. I want to be seen as the individual that I am. Like we wear that with pride. Like I am who I am. Let me stand on my own two feet. And God just smacks us down and says, from the beginning, he has intended, he has, God has ordered things where there is one person who stands in for the whole. That is the divine order of things. That there's one person who stands in for the whole. And in Adam, what we saw earlier in Genesis is where that headship can go wrong, right? Like where the one who stands in as the head, he sins. And this gets explained more as the Bible unfolds. He sins and he plunges all of creation, all of humanity into sin with him. Like we are guilty by being associated with Adam even before we ever sin. So we see how headship goes bad, in the Garden of Eden, but I would suggest to you here, as the flood story is articulated, we have our first glimpse, our first little crumb trail uh, of how the headship of a person could actually do the reverse. Like where one person could receive the favor of God and that that could be shared with all the people associated with him. Uh, that, that Noah is said as the head of this family and after the flood now as the new head of the human race. Like he is said to have the favor of God and that favor gets now spread. That favor of God gets shared. Sin got shared in the Garden of Eden. Now the favor and blessing of God gets shared with Noah's family and with all the animals that are on the ark with him. And it's this picture, this little subtle picture of what would ultimately become true in the person of Jesus that this man who comes on this scene later to serve as a new head of the human race, who is way better than Adam, way better than Noah, right? Who actually would live righteously, who would live perfectly. Uh, we, Noah was not sufficient for the task of living perfectly righteous, right? Of earning the eternal favor of God. Noah could not do that. We needed someone else to do that, and that's what Jesus did. I don't know how many of you like rap music, uh, maybe not a lot of you. Uh, you should give it a try, some of it, if you don't. Uh, there's a rapper named Shy Lin uh, who has a kid's song called Only Jesus. Even if you don't like rap, you would like this song, I think. It's very catchy. Uh, my family likes it a lot. Uh, but the whole point of the song is called Only Jesus. Is he just goes through this host, just bang, 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 of all these Old Testament figures who he says, wasn't good enough, 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 wasn't good enough. Then he ends by saying, only Jesus. And the first two that he says, because he's just following the scriptures, he says, Adam wasn't good enough, Noah wasn't good enough. And then he just keeps going down the line, and that is true. Like Noah had the favor of God in some small way, but it was favor that was granted to him. He didn't deserve it. Like it was kindly, graciously granted to God, by God to him, mercifully granted to him. But what we needed as the human race was somebody who could actually earn God's favor, who could actually live a life of perfection and obedience and holiness. We needed that to, and to be associated with a person like that. 
who has a good record that could get counted to me, that could get counted to us, and that's what we get in the person of Jesus. Noah is a mess. Wait till he gets off the ark. His, he, he is a man of faith, but he has some major foibles. Jesus did not. Jesus didn't have any like blips of judgment in his life or bad phases of his life. From birth to death, he obeyed God perfectly. He lived righteously. He deserved the favor of God, right? Noah was granted it. Jesus earned it. And that is good news for us because we need a righteous head. Like we need somebody that can stand in for me, someone who can stand in for us, who has perfectly obeyed, whose record can get counted now to us. And that is what we have in the person of Jesus. Jesus had and has the favor of God the Father now and forever. He earned it full out, right? Uh, The father at Jesus' baptism said, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, right? And he showed it. He didn't just speak it, but he showed it at his resurrection by raising him up from the dead, showing I approve of him. I approve of the sacrifice that he offered. He is righteous and holy. He deserves my favor. Y'all need to be with him. That's like what God is saying. And so Noah is this shadowy figure of how headship can be used to grant favor to an expanding group. But Jesus is a supreme example of that. He needs to be our head. So in the person of Noah, we have a, a, a picture, a signpost that brings us to Jesus. But I would suggest to you, secondly, that in the ark itself, we have a picture of Jesus as well. That Noah by himself wasn't sufficient to really point us ahead to Jesus. We needed the picture of the ark as well, right? Because Noah was a sinner, ultimately, who deserved God's judgment just as much as all those other thousands of people who went under the sea. Like Noah, the waters came down on Noah's head too, right? Like he needed shielding. He needed rescue from God just as all those other sinners on the planet did. And when those waters burst forth and when the windows of heaven opened, he needed that ark. Like he needed shielding. He needed protection and God graciously granted it to him. I want to go back to some of those same texts I I read before and point out the other part that's attached to them uh, throughout this text. It's laced through it that not that these people and these animals didn't just need Noah as their head. They also needed the ark as their haven. Right? They, they needed a place of protection. They needed shelter. They needed shielding. So look at this text, a few of those same places, but emphasize differently. Because God doesn't just evacuate them, right? He makes them go into this ark. So if you look at verse 9, it says that Noah and his son's wife, or his sons and his wife and his son's wives went with him, went into the ark. So with him, into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Verse 9 says, the animals went into the ark with Noah, right? So they have Noah representing them in some capacity, but they go into the ark with him. Verse 15 says that they went into the ark with Noah, right? And then verse 23, again, as the text ends, it says, only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark, And so repeated throughout this text, there's, yeah, you need to be with Noah, but you also better be in the ark. Both of those things need to be true. You need a a righteous head whose favor could be shared with you, but you need protection from God's judgment as well. You need a safe haven from him, right? They needed the ark. They needed to be with Noah, but they needed to be within the ark. 
Because when those floodwaters started coming, Noah, even if he wanted to on his own, could not stand between his family and the judgment of God. Right? It's not like he could just stand out there and say, get behind me, everybody. Like, I'll, I'll block the waves. Like, Noah was utterly incapable of doing that on his own. He could do nothing to shield them. He needed this boat. He needed something outside of himself, something that was constructed that they could enter into, right? Noah was not capable of shielding. Even as a godly head, he was not capable of shielding his children, shielding his wife, shielding these animals from the wrath of God. And just as an aside, I would want to make sure that we all in the room remember we're not capable of that either. Like to parents in the room, especially I think of you, like we want so badly to protect our kids from God's judgment. And like if we could, we'd say, let me suffer in their place. Like I'll stand between them and you, God. But we can't do it. Nobody can do that. Noah can't do it. I can't do it. You can't do it. There is no human being outside of Jesus, apart from Jesus, who can stand between God and his wrath and a sinful human being and say, Punish me instead. I'll absorb the wrath, right? Noah didn't absorb the waves. The ark absorbed the waves, right? It was what protected the people. It was not Noah that protected the people from God's wrath. And what the picture of the ark gives for us, it it points us ahead to Jesus, who serves as a greater ark, as a protector, as a, a shielder of God's people who deserve judgment, who should have judgment coming down on us, but he becomes a shield, he becomes a safe haven for us in the storm of God's wrath. Because Jesus was capable of doing what Noah could not, right? Because Jesus didn't deserve God's wrath. Jesus didn't deserve for the rain to come upon him. He didn't deserve for the judgment of God to come down upon him. So he actually could say to God now, hey, punish me in place of them. Like, Put me to death. Let the waves come over me. Like, let them crash against me so that they won't crash against them. Jesus actually could stand in and do that. And praise God that he was willing to and able to because we don't just need as human beings someone with a positive record that can get shared with us. We have that in Jesus. But even if we had that, we still have our offenses against God to be dealt with. We still have rebelled against God, just like the people of Noah's day, just like Noah himself. We have rebelled against God, and we need those dealt with. We need God's judgment to come down upon them in some sort of way where we can be released, where we can be freed. And the only way that that could happen is if someone else bore it in our place. That is the only way out of it, is if someone else would bear it in our place, if they would become a safe haven, a shield for us. And that's exactly what Jesus did at the cross. In Isaiah 53, the prophet Isaiah kind of anticipated this famous text talking about Jesus hundreds of years in advance. He said that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, for ours, right? He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Like Just as sure as God was the one blotting out, he was the one inflicting that judgment on the earth in the days of the flood, 
At the cross, God the Father was doing this again in grander, greater, more epic fashion. He was pouring out his wrath upon his son at the cross. He was opening the heavens, so to speak, and letting the, the floodgates of his wrath burst forth and come upon his son, one who is innocent. And Christ, like the ark, was the one that bore it. He was the one who absorbed it, who suffered it, who endured it, so that we wouldn't have to. Like it all came down upon him in that moment at the cross and he suffered in our place. God crushed him. It says in that same chapter that he put him to grief. God the Father puts his son to grief. Jesus is laid in the tomb, dead, having absorbed the full wrath of God. But then God raised him back up as a living head, right? Like as, as one who could stand in for us. And what we have the privilege and opportunity to do is to actually be joined with him now. To just like they entered into that ark, we have this opportunity by faith to enter into Jesus, to, to join him, to, to place our trust in him. And that is our only hope. That is your only hope to be shielded from the wrath of God that is to come is to be found in Jesus to, be, to not just have him as your head who lived a great life for you, but to, to enter into him by faith that he suffered for you, that he bore God's judgment for you at the cross, just like the ark bore it in the days of the flood. So in Christ, we have, in the person of Jesus, we have both our righteous head, right, who obeyed, but we also have our safe haven. We have this, this person who shielded us and who can shield us from the wrath of God that should come down on us. And the way that you can be joined with this Christ as your head and as your haven is very simple. It is by faith. The, the, the way to be joined with him is not by giving some credentials, right? Or like when those animals were coming onto the ark, it's not like they're getting retina scanned or having to prove their merits or whatever. Like they're just getting on the ark because God told them to. Right? Like they, they're not proving themselves. Noah's family didn't have to prove anything. They're just going on to the ark because God told them to. Right? And what God tells you is you don't need some credentials to be joined with Christ. You don't need some sort of merits to prove. There is no price of admission that you can pay to get into that ark. You go to Kentucky, they make you pay like 60 bucks or something to go in that ark. It's worth it. It's a fun fun place to go to get on this I'm very serious you don't have to pay a thing there's nothing you could pay and morality or money or your family tree or whatever there's nothing you could present at the door of that and say let me in because of this like the only way that you can be united with Jesus and enter into that ark of safety is by saying I've got nothing like my sin I deserve that flood to come down on me please let me in like you've said the door is open please let me in like I trust that Jesus is my head that lived rightly and he's my haven who suffered at the cross like please let me in and God will not turn you away like he won't like if you come to him on those terms he lets you in and Christ becomes your head who has already lived righteously for you. And he becomes your haven who already suffered at the cross and who when God's judgment comes down at the end will protect you again because he's already borne the wrath of God. This ark was made for eight people and a bunch of animals, but it was a limited number. The offer of Christ and of entrance into his ark is for anyone who will receive him. 
Like it is, there's no cap, some number that, like, you're out now. The, the door is open to you if you meet God on his terms and say, please receive me by the merit of Christ and the suffering of Christ. Please receive me. He will. And if you are already one of those brothers and sisters who have trusted in Christ, who have joined with him by faith, I want you to find comfort and assurance and knowing that you have Christ. Not, yes, you need Christ as your head. You need him as your safe haven. But if you've placed your faith in him, you have him as those. When, when you feel your own guilt, when you realize, man, as you either evaluate your past or your present, and you just see this sin that is present, Satan will have a field day with you if all you look at is your own worth and your own deservedness because you don't have it. Like, you have sin on your record. You have no perfect righteousness to give to God. And that is okay, because Christ does. And when, when you feel this temptation thing, man, I am such an awful, dreadful sinner. Like, I am rotten to my core. I've rebelled against him. Like, I deserve for those waves to come over me. Say, yes. But you also, if you're united with Christ, you have a head who's already lived righteously. God sees that. And you have an ark, a safe haven in the person of Christ and his suffering that shields you from the wrath of God. That you have not, there's no wrath of God left to come down upon you. You are approved by the Heavenly Father, not because you're wonderful and great, but because Christ has earned it, right? To all the unbelievers in the room, though, because I know there are probably many who, for whatever reason, you have yet to enter into that ark of Christ. Like you, you are on the outside watching us. You may think we're silly. You may think we're crazy. You may think they would never let me in. They would not want me in. I don't know what is keeping you from entering in by faith to union with Jesus. But I want to impress upon you that the door at some point will be shut. Right? If you hear me preach much, you know that I love Charles Spurgeon. He preached a sermon on verse 16. The Lord shut him in that he called, I believe if I remember right, shut in, shut out. And what he was trying to impress upon Christians was the glory of being shut in with Jesus. But he was also trying to warn unbelievers, the time is coming either at your death or at the return of Jesus where that door is going to be shut. And there is no entrance into the ark of Christ once that door is shut, either in death or at his return. And so today can be the day of salvation for you. Today can be the day that you enter into the ark of Christ by faith once and for all. I was down in Florida, I mentioned this week, and uh, amongst many things that I enjoyed, uh, one was just talking to this pastor that we got to spend time with who's a local pastor there, and we were asking him some about life in Florida and ministry. And just for a minute, we talked about hurricanes and uh, what, what those are like, and we were just thinking, man, isn't it wonderful that nowadays, we were talking about in the Midwest, tornadoes pop up, and you don't, you don't know when they're coming. <laughs> like, you're just surprised, and they're destructive. But hurricanes now, we can at least kind of tell when they're coming, and warnings go out, like, hey, you need to get in a safe spot. You need to evacuate, whatever. Um, and I, I was thinking about that, and that how foolish would it be if some, and this happens when people know this destructive hurricane is coming. And they hear the warnings, and they think, I'll be all right. Like, I, I, I'm fine. 
and they just roll the dice and risk it, and many people die because of that. And that is tragic and horrible. I was thinking, how much more foolish, and I say that with respect, but how foolish are you if you hear the warning of God that my judgment is coming someday, like, and it's going to be worse than this flood. It's going to be an eternal judgment, and it is going to come down on the human race. It may be next year. It may be a millennia from now. I don't know when it will be, but God is giving us plenty of heads up, and he is giving us a picture in this story. My judgment is coming down upon this earth for human rebellion against me. And he has told us and he has given us a way of escape. He has given us an opportunity to be forgiven and received by God and protected from him by Christ. How foolish would you be to just think, I can just roll the dice in eternity. There is no rolling the dice. Like God is the one who's bringing the judgment and he is the one who is giving the way of escape. And your only hope to make it through that judgment is to enter the ark of Christ to have him as your head, to have him as your haven. And so I would urge you to have today be the day. Don't wait for tomorrow. Don't wait for next year. Don't wait for a deathbed conversion because you don't even know that you have opportunity for that. Today, turn from your sin, enter into the ark of Christ. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to sing a closing song. Father in heaven, uh, we are grateful for this crumb trail in the scriptures that is far more than just crumbs. Uh, that has much to teach us and show us about who you are and about our fallen condition, but your provision for a savior. God, I pray for all of us in this room, if we are already on this metaphorical arc uh, of your son, that we've already been united with him as our head and, and found him as our safe haven, I pray that we would glory in that, that we would uh, delight in the fact that, that you have granted us entrance, that you've granted us protection. God, may we sing like we believe that. And for those that are unbelievers in the room, God, who maybe even at this very moment are still tempted to just think of this as fairy tale and fanciful thoughts, I pray that you would bring conviction upon their hearts and souls uh, and that, that you might move them to a place of repentance and to maybe even surprising to them to a place of faith in your son Jesus, that they would believe uh, that their standing with you can be secure through your son. I pray this in his name. Amen.